This podcast contains explicit content and is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hi, my name is Madison, and you are listening to Who's Knocking, a true crime podcast. You can probably hear in my voice, but I am unwell. I'm very unwell. I feel like garbage, but we're just going with it. Hopefully, Aiden can cut out any nastiness. So, today is going to be the start of a series that I am doing that I'm pretty excited about. Um, because it is a very, this one, I've always wanted to do it. It's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. I have always hesitated to do it because I feel like there's, there's a lot of like infighting and debate over this case. It is the Atlanta child murders. And there are a lot of people who have thoughts on this case. Um, Wayne Williams, who we'll we'll meet, who I'll, you know, because I will talk about him as I go. He is currently in prison um, for some of the Atlanta child murders, I guess. And there's a lot of people who think he shouldn't be there. There's a lot of people who think he should be there. Um, It's quite the mess to sort through. Um, I will tell you, um, for this case... I listened to Atlanta Monster, which is a podcast series by a guy named Payne Lindsay. Well, he's the host of it. And he kind of goes through all the information. He interviews Wayne Williams. um, And it's quite extensive, and I enjoyed it. Um, Then there's a series on HBO. I think it's called Atlanta's Missing and Murdered or Atlanta's Missing and Murdered Children. I'll I'll put it in the the sources. Mindhunter, um, if you saw the series Mindhunter, uh, season two, you will know what I'm talking about. There is a chapter in Mindhunter by John Douglas that discusses the case because my boy Johnny D was a big part of the Atlanta child murders case. This book called Child Killer, the true story of the Atlanta child murders by Jack Rosewood. I saw somebody mention this on Reddit, so I got it and I've been reading it. That one, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical about um the thing about this case is and I'll I'll show you examples in it as I go there are aspects of it where like I'll read something somewhere and then somewhere else I'll read the exact opposite take or like something completely different like so and so was at here at this time and and doing this and like somebody else will say they were doing something completely different so it is difficult to wade through and figure out what the truth of the matter is. So I'm doing my best, and I would absolutely love if if uh, if I say something that somebody disagrees with, I would love to hear that. Um, I there's a very likely possibility that I will say something wrong. So please, um, I'm interested in learning the truth. And if you think you know better than me, please let me know. Um, with all that being said, I think I should just get right into it because it's gonna be a a multi-part series uh, with a lot of information. So cuddle up, get a blanket, get some coffee, and let's get into it. So Atlanta, Georgia has a very long and tumultuous history. The city was founded in 1837, and it sat on the Western and Atlantic uh, Railroad Line. And to this day, Atlanta remains a huge transportation hub and also boasts of having a very large concentration of Fortune 500 companies. It is a bustling metropolis in the heart of the South. So especially given its context of like being in the South, it's kind of like the main city of the South. I've never been to Atlanta, but I'm dying to go, It, especially kind of researching into it. It looks like a really cool city. The huge difference between, I think, between the U.S. and Canada, I live in Canada, by the way, if you didn't know, um, America just seems to have so many, like, tier two cities that are, like, awesome and, like, have a completely different culture of their own and, like, 
are like big cities. In Canada, we have like two, two and a half big cities. And uh, so there's like so many different places in the U.S. to visit if you're interested in cities. Anyway, um, so in the 60s, Atlanta was the cultural center of the civil rights movement, home to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who kind of led the civil rights movement as we know it. His legacy is still very present in that city. Atlanta is rich with civil rights history. It has a bunch of landmarks and monuments uh, in honor of that time. Some of these landmarks include the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Dr. King's church uh, that also held his funeral, the King Center, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum, the Margaret Mitchell House, and that's just a few I was looking into. There's a quite an extensive list. It's clearly like it could be a reason that you'd go there, you know, to visit those things. So during its big boom in the 60s, following the biggest civil rights movement in America, the city of Atlanta began to call itself the city too busy to hate. That was like their slogan. And it kind of tried to embody like, look, uh, we don't need racial tensions here because we're moving, we're grooving, we're, we're growing. Atlanta was growing up and it was becoming one of, if not the economic hub of the South. Although race relations were kind of weak, it was probably the best place to be for black people in terms of opportunity. Atlanta has four very successful historically black colleges. It's friendly to black entrepreneurs and had a lot of great jobs. So again, not saying things were hunky-dory between whites and blacks. Like there was, the KKK was alive and well. You would see Confederate flags every which way. Um, Things were not great but of the south it was definitely the best and you as a black person could go there and make a life for yourself you could go to university you could uh get yourself a job and live comfortably in atlanta without as much trouble as anywhere else probably in the south atlanta georgia 1979 was a growing city it was beginning to thrive the population was largely black What was different about this population of people compared to any other time in history was that the young adults were the first generation to have gone through school post-segregation and gone on to join the workforce. So this was like the first generation of people to have had desegregated schools their entire lives, maybe not their entire lives, but for a large portion of their lives and gone on to work. Um, Not saying anything specific about it but that was the case there was still a lot of separation and general racism blacks and whites did not mingle they were very separate just outside the city uh it was full of black and white poverty separate of course um as i said uh, as i just said the the clan was around um it was alleged that there was it kind of had just phased out, but there had been a lot of Klansmen in the police force. Um, it was only um, kind of post-civil rights movement that black police officers were allowed to arrest white people um, before they were not. Uh, so there was, it's coming off of quite the history of segregation and like a two-tier situation where white people were well above black people um and it was this is like the first generation of people who are kind of shedding that are they finished shedding it oh but they're starting to but atlanta did have a very large black population with many prominent black leaders the mayor Minor jackson was elected in 1974 and he was the first black mayor in america He brought a lot of hope and vision to the city. The chief of police was also black, and the two of them wanted to see a much blacker police force. They they both um, came on with a mandate to increase the amount of black police officers um, to, to look over a mostly black city. In 1979, Atlanta, like most other places in America, children of all ages roamed the streets unaccompanied by adults. It was very normal for children to play outside until it got dark, 
parents didn't keep track of their kids with cell phones and GPS the way they do now. Nobody thought twice about sending a six-year-old child to the convenience store to pick them up a pack of smokes. That's just the way it was. And Atlanta specifically also had a lot of children from impoverished families, a common thing in most cities. These kids spent their time out on the streets, thought nothing of a random adult offering them money to perform simple tasks like sweeping or running to the store. Unfortunately, it was also common for adults to ask children for more than favors, especially in poor communities. It was all too common for adults to ask children for sexual acts in exchange for money. This very predatory behavior has been pointed to in a lot uh, pointed to a lot in this case as many of the victims were poor kids who had also fallen victim to these nasty pedophiles. All this to say that there was a large population of unsupervised children who were not weary of strangers, and sadly, many of them would make perfect victims to somebody trying to lure them away and harm them. So in the summer of 1979, when two black teenagers went missing, it was not front page news. Atlanta was a city where the odd child was killed. Usually this was a domestic violence or drug-related homicide. It is always a huge tragedy when a child dies, no matter the circumstance. It's just that generally there was an explanation. When both teens were found dead, mere feet from each other in a trash dump, it was also not front page news. 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith and 13-year-old Alfred Evans were both found on July 28, 1979 by a woman who was digging for aluminum cans near some fairgrounds. Edward Smith was an athletic boy. He loved sports and he was good at them. Edward also came from a pretty poor family. His father was not around and having to support the family on her own, his mother was not able to provide a whole lot of supervision. Edward spent a lot of time on the street doing odd jobs for people to earn spending money. He was known as a pretty streetwise kid, not somebody overly trusting of strangers. So this situation we will see is common among many of the victims. That night, Edward uh, had spent the evening at a roller rink with his girlfriend. Both of them left the rink around 10 p.m. and they went their separate ways, but Edward unfortunately never made it home. Alfred lived in very similar circumstances, only he seemed to generally run with a bit of a rougher crowd from what I was reading. Um, Some people who were kind of more into drinking and drugs. Alfred would often stay out all night and not return until morning. So his mother wasn't overly worried um, the night that Alfred didn't come home. When Alfred's mother did report him missing to the police the next day, they did not take her seriously because apparently he also had a bit of a history of running away. Now, it appeared that Edward had been shot and Alfred had been strangled. Both boys were on the kind of smaller end, although they were 13, 14. I don't know what size a 13-year-old boy is these days, but um, they were both about 5 foot 4, um, and they had been missing for less than a week before they were found. I'm, I'm pretty sure one of them had gone missing like three or four days before the other one, so one had, they both ended up in the same spot, but one Um, I believe it was Edward was a little bit further in decomposition about four days. The police figured that their deaths had been drug-related after they received a tip that they had both been hanging out at the same house and smoking marijuana. So, case closed. I don't know how you, how you take the boys were smoking marijuana to this was a drug-related homicide, but all right. The rest of the summer went by as usual. Edward and Alfred's murders were wrapped up and most people thought their deaths were sad but not super out of the norm. It did seem, definitely did perk people up a little bit that two boys were found in the same location, but it was more like, oh, that's like an unusual circumstance, but the police said it was a drug-related homicide. There you go. Um, As it approached 1979, Milton Harvey was the next to be plucked from the street. 14-year-old Milton was last seen on September 4th when his mother had sent him to run an errand for her at the bank. His very badly decomposed body was not found until November when it was recovered in a wooded area. Like Edward and Alfred, Milton was assumed to be another runaway from a poor family, not a situation that caused a lot of concern for the Atlanta PD. On November 8th, 
the body of nine-year-old Yusuf Bell was found under some floorboards inside of an abandoned school. Yusuf had been missing since late October, and Yusuf was out on the streets having a normal day with a bunch of kids when one of his neighbors asked him to go to the store to pick something up. And Yusuf lived in like kind of a housing project, uh, definitely kind of a rundown housing project. Um, I believe his mother actually said that he was barefoot at the time. He like barefoot went to the store. Um, the neighbor told Yusuf that he could keep the change in exchange for doing this task. This is a prime example of the types of very normal errands that kids would do um, for adults in their lives to earn a little bit of extra pocket change, right? Just the kind of thing that nobody would bat an eye at and had a very good chance of isolating that child. Medical examiners were able to determine that Yusuf had been strangled to death. The one thing that differed greatly in Yusuf's case was his mother, Camille Bell. She was not having the police gloss over Yusuf's case. She knew that something was not right. There was no way her nine-year-old son had run away or gotten involved in drugs. So when the police tried to brush her off, that simply did not work. It began with Camille's pleas to the media and the police. And eventually, the community as a whole began to recognize that there was a little bit of a pattern going on. Serial killers were a very new phenomena at the time, and we did not understand them the way that we do now. But I think it was around this time that people started to suspect that someone, or perhaps a racist group of people, were targeting Atlanta's young black boys. After Yusuf's death, things slowed down a little bit. The dead of winter did not bring about more bodies. Camille was still pushing for the police to figure out what happened to her son, but the police did not have a whole lot to go on, apparently, according to them. Now, on March 5th, 1980, 12-year-old Angel Lanier had a normal morning, um, but she never got to school that day. Her body was found on the side of the road five days later. Angel was bound and gagged with an electrical cord. She was fully clothed, but had a pair of underwear stuffed in her mouth. The cause of death in her case was ligature strangulation. There was no evidence of sexual assault, but it did seem likely based on the underwear in her mouth. And I think most people are aware of this, but I'll just say, um, it's very hard to find evidence of sexual assault. If somebody, for example, just rapes somebody else, there doesn't necessarily, especially if they wore a condom or something, it doesn't necessarily leave evidence. Um, so you can say there's no evidence found of sexual assault does not equal there was no sexual assault. Okay, um, so the fact that she had underwear stuffed in her mouth, which were not her underwear because she was still wearing her own underwear, um, that led them to believe that there may have been some sexual aspect to her murder. Only two days later, on March 12th, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis went missing, and he was last seen allegedly getting into a blue car. In April, Camille formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murders with a number of other victims' parents. STOP was founded by Camille Bell, mother of one of the youngest of the murdered children. All were aged between 7 and 16. Her son was 9. What kind of a boy was he? Basically a good boy, bright, outgoing to some extent, but not, not as outgoing as, say, my other son. Um, good in school. Um, he played um, drums, he played trumpet, he was running for treasurer of his class. How did you come to move on from your own uh, personal distress to the need for concerted action as a group? Mrs. Taylor, Mrs. Mathis and I got together in a support group and we found that some of the things that were happening to us as individuals after we met other parents and other parents and other parents were happening to everyone you know it wasn't just when it's just you that you feel like when you feel like you personally are getting the short end of the stick sometimes you'll accept it but the more people that you find it happening to the more likely it is that you'll act and we were finding that the city was taking the attitude of your kids are dead and we don't care now, could you spell that out a little bit what you mean by they not caring they're not um, caring you would call the police department and asked them about, um, asked them about, to ask about the case and your detective was never on duty and would never call you back. Um, no one was warning the city. There were 10 children dead before we finally 
got the city to even tell other people that anything unusual was going on. So presumably part of your campaign is to see that the quality of the police work is improved. Um, that's part of it, but um, our hope that we can get that done is not very great. What we're hoping for right now is that um, some of the private detectives and private people out doing a little look, looking around will stumble up on it and be able to convince the task force once they do that this is what's happening. Um, I contend that the Atlanta Police Department couldn't catch a cold. This group lobbied for help from anyone who would listen, and Camille specifically was very critical of the police, which I think we can say was justified. It cannot be overstated how important Camille Bell was in her advocacy. I think it's arguable to say that it was her who who really pushed the fact that there was a pattern going on into the mainstream. I think this would have taken a lot longer had she not pushed so hard. And I understand why she, she was doing that. Uh, it's very admirable in my opinion. She was very unsatisfied with the understaffed missing persons department at the Atlanta PD. She really put together that there were other missing kids who disappeared in a similar way to Yusuf. She knew that they were going to get people, uh, if they were going to get people to care, that they really had to see the grieving parents in the media. One thing about this case, especially in the beginning, it was, you know, poor black kids going missing. And you, there's always going to be less people caring, especially if you don't see their parents caring. Not to say that the these kids, their parents cared or didn't care. Um, I think you see a big range of that throughout this thing, this whole situation. Um, but she knew crying parents needed to be on the news for people to give a shit. Unfortunate that that's the case, but I think that's how the human mind works, unfortunately. You need to, you need to really be able to like see what it is and feel it emotionally for you to really care. So like seeing the parents missing their children like that, I don't know about you, but that definitely is a very, something that pulls at my heartstrings. It's hard to like in the abstract, be able to like really understand and really empathize with the situation. I hope that makes sense. Um, Camille was the one to get the media attention. She was the one at the mayor's office demanding to see him constantly and telling people of Atlanta what was going on. But despite her and her group's efforts, another victim was found on May 19, 1980, and this was 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks. He was found only about a quarter of a mile from his own home in an alley behind a bar. The medical examiner determined that he was killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Like many of the other murdered boys, Eric came from a family with little financial means and often made money by doing jobs for people, odd jobs. Some of these people were considered to be of the shadier variety. And it's been established that the night Eric went missing, he'd received a phone call at his mother's home. We don't know who was on the phone or what was said, but it does appear that that phone call is what prompted Eric to leave his home that night. And after he left his home, he never came back. One of the crime scene technicians collected a red fiber from underneath Eric's shoe. Fiber analysis was a very new thing at the time, but they thought, what the hell, we'll collect this fiber and who knows. Some of the other officers who actually saw the guy who was doing the collection made fun of this guy who pulled the fiber, thinking that it was ridiculous, um, but we will see just how wrong they were. And then there was 12-year-old Christopher Richardson, who went missing after heading to a local pool. And then there was a second girl, seven-year-old Latonya Wilson. Latonya was abducted from her bedroom window, plucked right out of her bed in the middle of the night. And then you can imagine, like, how terrifying this was to hear, uh, for, like, parents to hear that, like, kids were literally being plucked out of their own beds in the middle of the night. Apparently, there were witnesses who saw um, two men pull Latonya out of her bedroom window, and her skeletonized remains were found about 10 months later, not far from her home. Her cause of death remains unknown because of how decomposed her body was. 
Only two days after Latanya's abduction, 10-year-old Aaron Weichi's body was found under a bridge in DeKalb County. His cause of death was asphyxia and a broken neck. On July 5th, 9-year-old Anthony Carter was out at night with a large group of kids. His mom wasn't happy for him to be out of the house, but it was a very hot July night and he was with a big group. The kids stayed out late and they were playing a game of hide-and-seek when little Anthony went missing. The next day, Anthony Carter was found behind a warehouse. He had multiple stab wounds. Now this scene was a little bit different because he was clearly stabbed a bunch of times, but it was not but there was not a whole lot of blood at the scene, which led investigators to believe that he was killed elsewhere and then his body was brought to this dump site. Now, Anthony is an example of a child whose backstory I found conflicting stories of. I just described him as having a worried mother who wanted him home. This is how Jack Rosewood described Anthony Carter in his book, Child Killer. But on the HBO series that I watched, this was described very differently. All of the kids on the list were, later I'll tell you that the FBI is going to come in and help out. When that happened... Two FBI agents were assigned to each child to look very extensively into that child's specific murder. One of the agents that was assigned to Anthony said this, Anthony lived with his mother, who investigators later determined was a sex worker. Now, Anthony's home often had no electricity or running water. While his mother worked, Anthony was left to his own devices. She would wake up, get him a McDonald's meal, and essentially leave him there for the rest of the day. Um, This is another child who was very street smart, but very defenseless in the grand scheme of things. This child had no financial means, very little supervision, or any sort of um, uh, guidance from family or anything like that. He was largely on his own. The FBI agents came to suspect that Anthony had been killed by his mother and alleged that she even admitted to them that she did. Now, this was not written down anywhere, and they couldn't prove it, so she was never charged. Anthony was a lot of extra work for her and got in the way of her lifestyle, alleged the FBI agents. And he was also killed with a knife and stabbed multiple times and looked like he was brought to the dump site, which is different and didn't seem to fit the pattern of the kids on the list, who seemed partial to strangulation. And I think we'll get into it a little bit later, but... Kids are going missing and being murdered. And we're thinking that this is one person doing all of this. But Atlanta in general has cases of child murders and abductions or whatever. So it's very reasonable to assume that not every single child that is showing up dead has to do with the same perpetrator, right? Does that make sense? Now, I highlight this case because I want to emphasize just how conflicting a lot of this information is. It could be the case that both of these accounts are basically true, but each of them was told with their own bent, you know, or it could be that someone was misremembering or that someone is lying. It's really hard to say. I think with this case, like, I like to get into all the nitty gritty details, but I think we're only going to really feel like a general sense of truth for a lot of it because things are so conflicting. But we'll see. Hopefully, we solve the case. It's probably not going to happen, but people are on it right now, actually. So only then, after 10 children were brutally murdered or missing, did the Public Safety Commissioner set up the Missing and Murdered Task Force. But even so, the bodies kept showing up. 10-year-old Earl Terrell was reported missing on July 31st. Earl was last seen sitting outside of a public pool that he was at with his brother, and he just vanished. Then, 12-year-old Clifford Jones. Clifford Jones was found dead on the side of the road. He died by ligature strangulation. And only then, after Earl was found, did the police officially state their investigation would now work off the idea that all of these deaths were related. That seemed to take a little too long, in my opinion. People of Atlanta... Okay, and let's see. Why why did it take so long for them to put this together? I think we have to also understand, and this is it's kind of from here on, it gets very political. So you have the, the mayor, Maynard, 
first black mayor in America. Huge deal. And he does not, it is not in his best interest to say there's a serial killer targeting black children or there's uh, another big theory at the time was that the Ku Klux Klan was going after black children. I think a lot of the politicians, um, chief of police, etc., were very scared to incite any sort of race war, racial animosity. They were working off the idea that things were getting better between whites and blacks, and they were very prideful of that, and they were doing their best to make this a very black-friendly city. So to have a bunch of black kids go missing and be murdered, that was not, they were really just hoping this would end and they could move on from it. But as we're seeing, this is not stopping anytime soon. So I think that was a huge reason why it took so long to put it together and at least admit that something was going on. Not saying that that's okay by any means, that's horrible. Um, But race relations and politics plays a huge role in why this case is so complicated and why to this day things are just not settled. So I'll say that. So after they admitted that things seemed to be connected, the people of Atlanta were getting really scared. Someone was preying on their children. The city began to enforce a 7 p.m. curfew for children under 14. If kids were found outside past 7 p.m. unaccompanied by an adult, they would be taken home by the police. And if there was no one home, they would be taken to detention centers. This was a pretty big thing because a lot of these kids and teens were used to being out by themselves at all hours of the night. Uh, They did not want to go home at 7 p.m. And a lot of people had issues with this because it really felt like the police were punishing possible victims. It's very much in the same vein as now when they are, you know, encouraging college girls to get men to walk or drive them home at night. It's putting the onus on the more vulnerable party to keep themselves safe rather than punish the bad guy. The thing about these measures is that they're working on the part of the equation that they can control. You can't control a serial killer or possibly a racist group going out to murder children. So I do, in some ways, like I get people being upset about that, like it's just shitty, but it's just shitty that somebody is killing children. That's just, there's no way around how awful that is. Every night, they started doing this thing at 10 o'clock. They started airing these PSAs that said, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? And it started just with like newscasters, but then they'd get like celebrities to say it and stuff. And it became this big thing. I don't know if anybody's ever heard this. Like, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? It's a pretty famous um, saying. And this is where it started. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Many communities, um, especially in some of these housing projects, started what was called bat patrol and this was grown men who would arm themselves with baseball bats and guard their neighborhoods they would act as a checkpoint and question anyone who was going in or out or who they thought looked suspicious and these guys were pretty aggressive and had a pretty bad reputation in the media but can you blame them no kids were being plucked out of these neighborhoods and being murdered so a lot of people are like, seem to be a little bit, they're like, oh, these, they were so aggressive. And like, yeah, you know, you got to watch out because um, they probably did hurt a lot of innocent people, not going to lie. Um, but it's like, what other option do these people have? As to who everyone thought was responsible for these crimes, the common thought was that this was somebody with a, with racist intentions going after the black community and trying to eliminate young black males. Someone perhaps like the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan. Remember, this was 1980s American South, so those guys were actually still around. This was at the time where the black and white population still lived very separately. The civil, civil rights movement had been quite successful, but racial tensions were still high. And at the time, no one had ever heard of a black serial killer before. No one. 
Nobody in the black community could imagine that a black person could ever be responsible for systematically killing all of these black children. People were starting to call it a genocide. But other than thinking that this was racially motivated and starting to monitor the Klan, the police were still at a loss. The FBI had been consulted, but they didn't have any jurisdiction over this situation, as so far no federal crimes had, been, had taken place. But all of that changed when Earl Terrell's family began to receive ransom calls from an unknown individual, claiming that they had taken Earl to Alabama. This meant that the potential kidnapper had crossed state lines, giving the FBI jurisdiction. When the calls were discovered to be a hoax, the FBI was forced to leave. This really sucks because clearly the Atlanta PD needed help. Having the FBI step in is huge because they have so many more resources to work with. After the FBI left, another 11-year-old named Darren Glass was reported missing on September 12th. Darren was a foster child who was known to have run away from his foster home. To this day, Darren has never been found. Now, political pressure was mounting on the mayor and the police to solve this case. As I said earlier, Manor Jackson was elected on a promise to make the police force more black. This was not an outrageous thing to suggest, especially since the population was so largely black. But one of the unintended consequences of this, which was suggested by... I think it was an ex-police officer in the Atlanta Monster podcast, was that the police force recruitment situation got very political and tense. According to some of the police officers at the time, it started to become clear to the white officers that they would not be eligible for advancement opportunities or new jobs. And the vibe, according to some of them, was that the new black recruits were being given a leg up, even that they were being given test answers for some of the tests that they had to take, and that underqualified candidates were being promoted because they were black. Now, I don't know how much of this is true. I don't know how you would determine that. Or if it was just white people being sour. But it did seem that whatever was actually going on created a very political environment. And a lot of senior homicide detectives ended up retiring early. And I think that it's very possible that the police force as a whole were really not on their A-game with all this infighting and perceived prejudices. All that to say, the mayor really wanted the FBI back. And also, I just think, like, it just didn't leave a situation for, like, the best possible police task force that they could have had. Everybody was focused on all these other things, and the focus should have been on the missing and murdered children. Now, Maynard needed help. He was getting desperate, so he reached out uh, to the White House for help, and he actually went and spoke with President Reagan. And I know that one of the, there was, it was like kind of after the whole like Lindenberg kidnapping um, and that was used as a comparison. It was like one child was kidnapped and you had all this FBI help. Well, we have like, I don't remember, I don't know how many kids were missing at this time, but like 10 plus children missing and murdered. We need your help. So Attorney General Griffin Bell agreed to help and to send the FBI. Although technically, this should not have been an FBI case because they didn't have the crossing the state lines or the kidnapping or whatever situation that... Um, allow the FBI to step in. Um, but they decided that they would get a little bit creative, um, Griffin Bell did, and he ordered the FBI to Atlanta. So the official orders were to look into the cases of the children who were still missing to determine if any of them had crossed state lines, which we know would give the FBI jurisdiction in the entire caseload. The Atlanta field office was told to see if they could find any connection between the cases. The less official orders were to go into Atlanta and solve this case as soon as possible before it was made clear that they really didn't have jurisdiction. When the FBI began, it was a bit of a shit show. As much as a lot of the big political figures wanted the FBI there, the local police force wasn't super welcoming, as it always goes. This type of pissing contest is common in law enforcement when it comes to the bigger dogs showing up and taking over. Very annoying. I feel like this is a, I don't know, I don't want to get into it, but like, this is how men behave. 
<laughs> sorry if that's a hot take the fbi sent two profilers fbi profilers maybe you've heard of them the two guys were my boy john douglas and his boy roy hazelwood sorry i just i for any of you like maybe you're new here but like i love john douglas i think he's so interesting so fascinating um he's i think he's probably a great profiler but my god this man is so into himself i don't know if you've ever read a book by john douglas he just fucking loves to talk about himself and i just i find him so funny and if you if you go and look on like reddit or anything um to see what people are saying about john douglas it's all it's all like oh my god this man is in love with himself um and it's a very like he seems like quite a brilliant guy but like He's just really obsessed with himself. Roy Hazelwood, I know a lot less about. I have a book of his, but I haven't read it yet. Anyway, and profiling is such a fascinating topic. I There's a lot of debate about it here online. Um, I... I get... I, 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 think it, I, think it, I think profiling is a, like, legitimate thing. The problem with profiling, to my in my understanding, is that you have to rely on all the evidence you have and the crime scenes in order to determine a profile, right? But if anything within that data that you're collecting is incorrect, it can lead you to make a profile that is like completely the opposite or, or just very different than what the true facts would lead you to, if that makes sense. Like, say you have a crime scene where... Or, or say, okay, for example, say you have eyewitness testimony saying that they saw, they saw a person who was uh, 23 years old or around 23 or whatever, a young person. And it turns out that that was incorrect information, but yet they use that in the profile. It could throw off every other aspect of the profile. You know what I mean? Like it, the profile is only as good as the evidence you have to work with. I hope that makes sense you guys i'm really ill right now so please excuse my extreme brain fog anyway john douglas come roy hazelwood comes they're working on the case yada yada both of these guys renowned in their fields they have become famous in the true crime space both have authored multiple books the show mindhunter is based off of john douglas and his start of the bau which is the behavioral analysis unit within the fbi um and mindhunter in case you haven't seen it centers around this very case in the season two so what is criminal profiling criminal profiling according to the fbi is the process um defined by the FBI as a technique used to identify the perpetrator of a violent crime by identifying the personality and behavioral characteristics of the offender based upon an analysis of the crime committed. So it's taking all the evidence, crime scene, um, anything they know, all the evidence, and using that to figure out what type of person this is, who are they looking for. So criminal profiling is used as a tool to aid law enforcement in their investigation. Once a profile is made, it can help narrow a search, and the FBI and the profilers can help create um, searches or devise plans to specifically target the type of person that they're looking for. So profilers come in and they, they make their profile and they give it and they give their advice, but they're not investigators. They're not the ones going out and like trying to find the person. After John and Roy spent some time studying the cases and extensively studying them, they independently came up with almost the exact same profile, according to them. Here is the first thing they had to say, and this is quoted directly from John Douglas's book, Mindhunter. <clears throat> Quote, First, we didn't think that these were clan-type hate crimes. Second, we were almost positive the offender was black. And third, while many of the deaths and disappearances were related, not all of them were. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation had received several tips about the Ku Klux Klan involvement, but we discounted them. If you study hate crimes going all the way back to the early days of the nation, you find that they tend to be highly public, highly symbolic acts. A lynching is intended to make a public statement and create a public display. 
such a crime or other racial murder is an act of terrorism, and for that to have an effect, it must be highly visible. Ku Klux Klansmen don't wear white sheets to fade into the woodwork. If a hate group had targeted black children through the Atlanta area, it wouldn't have been content to let months go by before the police and public figured out that something was going on. We would have expected bodies strung up on Main Street, USA, and the message would have been none too subtle. We didn't see any of that type of behavior in these cases. The body dump sites were in predominantly or exclusively black areas of the city. A white individual, much less a white group, could not have prowled these neighborhoods without being noticed. The police canvassed extensively and had no reports of whites near any of the children or dump sites. These areas had street activity around the clock, so even under the cover of night, a white man could not have been there completely unnoticed. This also fit with our experience that sexual killers tended to target their own race. Even though there are no clear evidence of sexual molestation, these crimes definitely fit a sexual pattern, end quote. Okay, so the profilers noticed that although a lot of these kids were known to be very street smart, they were also of a very similar low socioeconomic background and were all susceptible to fall for a ruse of a stranger offering money in exchange for a small favor or job. So they ran tests in the neighborhood where they sent an undercover cop to ask kids for favors in exchange for small amounts of money. They found it was very easy to get a kid to agree and to lure them away on their own, regardless of the color of the undercover cop. However, when the cop was white, he aroused a lot of suspicion from everyone else in the vicinity. So to them, this was proof of two things. One, the killer was preying on a particularly vulnerable portion of the population. And two, the killer was very likely a black man. Now, this was not winning them any popularity contests in the community. I listened to this series, um, Atlanta Monster, as I said, and Payne Lindsay, the host, interviewed more than one prominent person from around the time of the murders, people who worked in the news, journalists, etc., and to this day, there are a lot of people who think not only that it was wrong, but that the FBI should at least not have ruled out a white perpetrator. Um, the FBI contends that they did not rule out a white perpetrator, but just that they felt they had sufficient evidence to veer the investigation in the direction of a black perpetrator. I don't know who's right. I don't, you know, I don't like to take any of these people at face value. I'm just saying what they said. Now, the profilers also figured that there were a few cases on the list of victims that were not related. Like, remember, like I said before, it's like they're just putting every kid who shows up dead on this list. It's very likely that just other murders happened to have happened, and but they were thrown on the list. Um, this did not go over very well because the list, as it had began to be called was becoming very political like everything else. Families wanted their loved ones to be included on the list for a few reasons. One, the investigations of the kids on the list were getting way more attention and resources than any other cases. And two, there was a pool of money that was being collected and it was supposed to go towards the victim's family, but only if they were on the list. There were a lot of celebrities who were donating money. There was a huge pot. Interestingly, to this day, nobody knows what happened to that money. For those reasons, if somebody made the list, even if they later determined that the victim didn't really fit in with the pattern and probably died by other means, it was near impossible to get them removed from the list, even if they obviously didn't belong there. And just saying, it's very understandable from the victim's family standpoint why you would want them to remain on the list. I would. Either have your kid's murder be under the, uh, the FBI's investigation, being given extra resources and media attention, or be relegated to some random other detective. Like, what would you want? However, not a good strategy if you're trying to figure out the truth, and especially if you're trying to, like, profile, right? Like, for example, we, it's always talked about, like, the two there's two girls on the list. Very likely that they are not victims of... A single perpetrator who was doing the majority of these murders very likely but there was no way to get them off the list um now this is the entire profile that that um john and roy came up with 
and along with everything that I said before, but so they thought that this person was a black male single between the ages of 25 and 29. This person would be a police buff and drive a police type vehicle. They figured that at some point he would insert himself into the investigation. They predicted that he would have a police type dog, something like a German shepherd or a Doberman. Um, this person was sexually attracted to young boys. There were not any obvious signs of sexual abuse or rape, which they thought pointed towards the person having some severe sexual inadequacy. He would use some sort of ruse or con that uh, to lure these children. The bet was that it was something to do with music or performing. They thought that at some point early on with each kid, they would do something to reject the unsub or that he would perceive it as a rejection and that would trigger him to kill the child. Now, the part that I always thought was interesting is like, how do they know that they, or where do they come up with the fact that they thought the the ruse or the con would be something to do with music or performing? And I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I know a lot of these kids and it was very common in the neighborhoods to have like talent shows and a lot of these kids were into performing and music and stuff like that. So I think that's probably where they, they were like, they knew that there was something that the killer was using to, to lure the children and that was their bet and that's very interesting and you'll see why later. So first thing that the Atlanta PD did was gather a list of all the known pedos and sexual offenders. A small list consisting of 1,500 individuals was produced. Jesus Christ. There are so many sexual predators among us. It's foul. Sorry, just foul. Anyway, they really leaned into this pedophile theory. They went to schools and they interviewed children asking if they had been approached, uh, if anyone knew anything, anyone creepy, whatever. Another thing about this case, and I guess it had to do with the times, is that the media really took hold of the idea that this man was going after young boys. And so the gays were really dragged through the mud. If you listen to any of the old newscasts, just the amount of times that they say homosexual in any given segment is like borderline hilarious and like it's really not funny, but it's like they're just like a ring of homosexuals and the homosexuals are doing like it's just like chill, Nance. Like it's aggressive. Um, it's it's actually very like upsetting to listen to because they were very much pathologizing homosexuality and kind of equating it with pedophilia, which is like so shitty. And um, especially because it's assumed that this predator was a man and then he was going up to young boys. So he's a pedophile and he was gay. Um, and then I, I guess that all just kind of got mixed up and everyone was like, well, if you're gay, you must be a pedophile. And it's like, oh, my God. There did seem to be quite a rampant underground world of child sex rings and creepy pedophil pedophilic just nastiness going on in Atlanta. Just like someone was plucking young vulnerable children off the streets, so too were pedophiles and, check and child pornography producers doing the same thing. You had a lot of children who were young and poor and would do just about anything for five bucks. So there were a lot of people who claimed to be aware of people and places who dabbled in sexually abusing minors in exchange for a bit of cash. None of these alleged child sex rings have ever been officially linked to the case, but there is a lot of chatter, and I will go more in depth about specifics when I get to alternative theories at the end. So the investigation continued, and there were a ton of leads, but everything was turning up empty. Then this guy called up, claiming to be the killer. He was obviously a white guy, like he's like kind of rednecky, not black. The profilers were positive that this was not the guy, but they needed to find him and eliminate him, of course. When he first called, he gave a location and said that the next body would turn up on the side of a specific road. It was John Douglas who actually came up with a plan to get this guy. He said that this caller um, thought that the cops were stupid and that if they could act like they really were stupid, he thought um, this guy would come back and they could trace the call. So he told the cops to make a big public show out of searching for the body in the area that this guy told them to search, only to search on the wrong side of the road. 
Sure enough, when the news footage of the police searching the wrong side of the road surfaced, this mystery redneck guy called back to tell them what idiots they were. They were ready for the call, and they traced it and found the guy, and he was just some random loser who had nothing to do with the case. But then, not too soon after, a body did show up in that location. Now, what this proved to the investigators was that their perpetrator was following the case. He did this as a sign of power, which is what his murders were all about, power and control. So he was he was clearly following the news, saw this whole thing, and then wanted to be like, see, haha, motherfuckers, I'm still here, and if I want to drop a body right there, I'll do it. Which is terrifying. Um, the body that surfaced was uh, Terry Pugh. Terry was 15 years old, and he had been strangled to death. And that fit the same profile as most of the other victims. He was last seen trading bottles for money near a shopping center. Now, before Terry, there was another victim, and this was Luby Jeter. Luby seemed to fit the profile of most of the victims as well. He was poor, often unsupervised, and he was last seen in a mall parking lot selling car air fresheners. Luby's case was interesting. There was one witness who said they saw Luby getting into a car with a man. And the description of this man varies a lot depending on who you ask. To those who defend Wayne Williams, they say that this was a white man. And those who believe it Wayne Williams say it looked a lot like Wayne Williams. So really difficult to say. Luby Jeter's body was found one month after he went missing. And it had been, he had been stripped of all of his clothing except his underwear. And his clothing was found in multiple nearby locations. It looked like Luby had died of manual strangulation or asphyxiation. Now, after Terry, there was 12-year-old Patrick Baltazar, and Patrick was found off Buford Highway in Delcap County. Patrick had also been strangled. So I think we're seeing, like, I think of this list, like, you want to be looking at the all the victims who were strangled. And there was some manual strangulation and some ligature strangulation, but I think you know, there was a couple, there was a blunt force trauma, there was a couple stabs. Um, those ones, I think, you're, are likely not the perpetrator. This perpetrator clearly loves strangulation. And what do we know about strangulation? It is the most intimate way to kill somebody. It is extremely, it is feeling somebody's life drain with your hands. Like that is, it's, uh, it's intimate, which goes towards, I think, a sexual motivation. But this is just me, a random layman, saying this shit, so (laughs) I'm not a doctor. Anyway, for the last five or so victims, the investigators had been collecting fiber and hair evidence. And though it was a new science, they were actually seeming to find a pattern. There was this very unique green carpet fiber found on many of the victims, as well as dog hair. Unfortunately, the forensic findings began to be discussed in the media, and after their findings went public, the offender began to change something about the way that he began dumping bodies. And that's where I will get to it in the next episode. Um, I think if you're familiar with the case or if you watch Mindhunter, you might know what I'm going to say, but I'll just leave it to next week. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're going to end it. So we see that this person or somebody, or it could have been a group of people, we don't know, um, were going through and and systematically kidnapping and murdering black children and kids and teens. Um, At this point, they have not ruled out any of like they, they have this list and they're, they're really not taking people off the list yet. I know that John Douglas was trying to say like, Hey, look, this kid, this kid, and this kid, I don't think that's the same perpetrator, but that his, his wanting to do that didn't take them all, didn't get them removed from the list, but I think he and Roy made their profile based on the kids who they thought should be on the list and kind of left out um, the kids that they didn't think would be on the list. It's political. It is very emotional. And unfortunately, I think a lot of decisions are being made um, 
with a like political or an emotional aspect to them which is just not conducive to seeking truth and we'll get more into that next week um i'm kind of going through this in real time so if you have questions or if you think i've left something out please comment and then i could address it in the next episode um you'll only be able to do that for a few days because i'm going to start doing the next episode soon um but i would love and please tell me if i've said something that is wrong there (laughs) i have been taking information from so many different sources so very open to the possibility that i have said something wrong please I love, I would love it if it was like a conversation. Um, yeah. So you can reach out to me on Instagram at who's knocking podcast, Twitter at who's knocking pod, email me hello at who's knocking.com sign up for my newsletter. Um, you can do that at grimweekly.com and please stay safe out there because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.